The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. And today we have a special for you. We have another guest swap episode with some amazing hosts of a podcast who are focused on the topic of data science. And so we are joined here with the hosts of the Harvard Data Science Review podcast, Liberty Vittert and Shelley Mung. Uh, but before we introduce them and we bring them uh, here into this podcast and share their amazing insights about what they're hearing and seeing in the topic of data science, uh, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, perhaps you're coming from the Harvard Data Science Review podcast because we've been uh, fortunate to be guests as well on their podcast. If you're listening to our podcast for the first time, you should know that what we do here on AI Today is we talk about what is happening with AI today. And we look at implementations and challenges and some of the, the issues people are having putting AI into practice, because while there's a lot of great things to be said about AI and its promise for the future, and some of the things we hope and, and really wish and desire the AI to be, we know that in practical uh, practicality, making AI happen does run into a lot of the real world challenges. And we spend a lot of our time looking at those real world challenges. So we're at over almost four years. Actually, by the time you're hearing this, we're at over four years and over 220 episodes of the AI Today podcast. And you can hear interviews with folks like Colin Angle of iRobot and uh, uh, folks from, from the UK House of Lords and government agencies, as well as organizations like GlaxoSmithKline and Coca-Cola and Merck and Wells Fargo and all sorts of organizations. So please do tune in and take a look at all of our episodes and you can uh, hear more about that. We also spend some time on the markets and take a look at where AI is heading. So as mentioned, uh, today we are excited to have with us the host from the Harvard Data Science Review podcast, Liberty Vittert and Shelly Mung. Thank you so much for joining us on the AI Today podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. We're so excited to have you guys today. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about your background and why you started the podcast. Well, thank you again for having us. And uh, uh, we re we're we really great. Uh, feel fortunate to have this opportunity to talk to you, uh, partly because there are lots of confusing the, between what's data science, what's AI, and I think we will get the opportunity to, to talk about that here. That'd be great. And uh, speaking of my background, uh, my name is Xiao Liman. I am a professor of statistics at Harvard, and I have been in the professional uh, in the in the professional statistics for the last 35 years. And the reason we launched the Harvard Data Science Review uh, podcast is really because it's a part of the a broad platform uh, called Harvard Data Science Review. And uh, Harvard Data Science Review or HDSR was inspired by Harvard Business Review. As many of you know, uh, Harvard Business Review is a leading uh, publication magazines in you know, facing industry and, and, and the business world, as well as the Harvard Law Review, which is uh, you know leading scholarly journal in the legal studies, you know, uh, all lawyers read that, read that journal. And uh, so we, the Harvard Business, uh, sorry, Harvard Data Science Review is essentially trying to do what they do, but for data science. Uh, although we add a certain component, I think uh, the HBR Harvard Business Review is really uh, outreach to uh, you know business industry, 
and uh, have a law reviews, much more kind of a, you know legal scholarly publication. We do both scholarly research publication as well as industry government outreach. Uh, NGO as well, but we also have a very important component, which is our data science education, uh, being a part of the university. So we kind of integrate these three things into one. And we launched the Harvard Data Science Review podcast only this year. Um, we're sort of very new compared to you. I think we have seven episodes so far, and uh, it's really part of the efforts to reach our general mission, which we call the Harvard Data Science Platform, is for is for everything data science and data science for everyone. And podcast is just another way of reaching out and also broad our content. So, I think a, a lot of our goal with the podcast is to be able to to show how data science really is in everything that we do and the breadth of it so that it can kind of touch everyone, including people who wouldn't necessarily think that data science is part of their lives. So our episodes span everything from the data science and data analytics behind the game of basketball and art auctions to real serious use of AI and healthcare, all the way to the, the data of love and how to maximize your love matches or the chance of getting divorced um, you know, it really is trying to, to showcase everything that data is in and how it can really affect everyone's lives. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I think organizations from what we've seen and heard for the last you know decade plus, but obviously this goes back even farther, know the value of data. And I think really kind of even more so recently, we understand the inherent asset that that data is are actually plural and the value that we can get from extracting more more insights from that data and that's a lot to a lot of large extent we're trying to accomplish with data science and so you know on the Harvard data science review podcast you know you spend a lot of time you focus on sort of the news and the policy and the business of all that through the lens of data science so perhaps you could share with us some insights about the ways in which the data that you're seeing is being used, maybe misused uh, from from, uh, all that perspective. I think one of the best ways to do that is through example. So one of my favorite recent podcasts was about art and how we can predict the value of art through machine learning. And, you know, what is the value of art? And, you know, is it in the eye of the beholder or can data analytics place some, you know, monetary value on beauty? And it it sort of started off with discussing um, a banana on the wall with duct tape. So I don't know if anyone remembers. It was in the news. It was about two years ago at Art Basel, which is that um, Miami big art fair in Miami and an artist um, duct taped a banana to the wall. And all of a sudden there's this huge debate about whether, you know, is this real art or is this the ridiculousness of art? And we were talking with a, a really famous art curator and also a guy who wrote an article for HDSR on predicting the value of art. And it was, it was really disgusting how hard it can be to create a machine learning um, algorithm to predict this. But what I thought was fascinating was they talked about the value of the middle and that maybe an ML couldn't predict something that's so outside the range, like a banana with duct tape, but that most art that, you, that is sold is under the value of $10,000. So it can be predicted. It's kind of like Zillow. Zillow doesn't do a very good job of predicting houses that are going to be sold for tens of millions of dollars because the data quality isn't very good. There's not a big sample size, but it's really good at predicting everything in the middle of the market, the majority of this stuff. And, you know, it also brought us into this idea of, of how data gets confused. There was an article about how if you're an artist, 
If you go to a low level prestige institution, you're never going to get out of that low level prestige institution. And if you start at a high value prestige institution, you're going to be at a better institution. And really, it, it sort of means the data wasn't telling you the truth because it didn't go with the nuance of the situation. And then nuance of the situation is not, that's not true in the art world. I mean, you know, yes, is it, is, are you more likely to succeed in the art world if you're white male, you've gone to Yale and you're coming from the upper third echelon of the socioeconomic stratum? Well, of course, but that's been true for every single profession that there is in our past history. And if you take these sort of changes and these outliers, you know, look at the most impactful artists of the second half of the 19th century, Basquiat, and he and you know, his paintings are selling for millions of dollars, tens of millions, and he doesn't fit into any of those boxes. And that's because when we learn this, you know, that art really you know, develops as it changes. And so now you have this different world um, where the art community really does value diversity. And that's something that the ML or the machine learning couldn't necessarily pick up on quickly enough, but that it does a great job at the middle and that it's very easy, just like anything with data, to get confused as to what it's really telling you. And even in a world of art, which for me, I would have been shocked that there was data in art. It's actually one of the most important things now is the analytics and data analytics of art. Let me uh, follow up on another example from actually the first episode of, uh, you know, we broadcast which is on the uh, you know the the data and the love right and uh, this is the uh, this is an example where we trying to get into a little bit deeper in terms of uh, you know how people collecting data and analyze data and uh, we all understand in the end uh, the data quality is incredibly important as well as how you analyze the data the same data same question different people can get rather different answers. And this is one of the things that it's it's kind of a, a tricky situation. And these are the researchers that have been doing predicting people's, you know, uh, divorce, you know, whether they will get along, whether life, whether their marriage was successful. And they say they have about over 90% of accuracy. Now, of course, that's very impressive, right? Over 90% accuracy. You know? And I think uh, most of data scientists or statisticians will be very skeptical where, where these where the 90% come from. And of course, we being, uh, you know, trying to promote the, the rigorous, you know, data science analysis, we obviously ask these uh, these kind of questions. And, and these are kind of things that, you know, the, the general audience may or may not realize. It all depends on how you define. And, and in this particular case, the way they got 90% of success is they follow up these individuals that, you know, they do testing in the beginning. Over the time, then they look at, you know, who divorced, who did not divorce, then they fit a statistical model. Uh, it could be a sophisticated model, it could be a simple model, but whatever model you, you fit, then see how that models will kind of retrospectively predict what the things you know could have happened. And um, so if there is as any data science would know that you know that you tend to get a better rate uh, just because you're fitting to the best, like you're trying to let the data speak kind of the, the best to the situation. It's a different story that if you just follow up using your algorithm, you know, follow up, uh, uh, you know, two groups of people, probably do some randomized trial if you can, and then see later what's the success rate, right? And that was not the 90% that was reported. I don't even know if they have done that. Um, and so that's kind of a thing we try to explain on our podcast so through the HDSR uh, articles, I think all these numbers are useful, but they're telling probably different stories. And most people probably think about 90% is saying, well, if you tell me, then I have 90% chance to succeed or 90% chance to, to fail. And that's not necessarily the case. And But to do this study well is incredibly hard. 
because you know it's a longitudinal study. You're reading to follow people for a long time, and most researchers may or may not have that kind of uh, patients, capacity, resources to do that. And so it would take the collective efforts for all of us trying to piece up to piece together all these historical data and moving forward and also get the story right. So I think one thing we try to do, and I'm sure you, you do that as well, is to make sure that we have the responsibility to explain to the general public about what these numbers means and what these results means, because that's ultimately, we all like the things we like and we don't like things we don't like, and it's so easy to fall the trap, pick up whatever you think is supporting your theory or your, your product, and, and we all become so much you know, cherry picking, which would be terrible for both AI and data science. Yeah, these are great insights. And I always love when people can bring examples because I think a lot of people uh, can relate, you know, when they hear examples. But before I move on to the next question, Liberty, can you very quickly share your background? I know we got so excited and we got right into the questions, but I want to make sure our audience also gets to hear your background as well. Oh, that's, that's, I, you know, I, I always hate talking about myself. I need a publicist. Shelly's always the best one um, for me. But I, I, uh, I'm a professor of the practice of data science at Olin Business School at Washington University in St. Louis. And I am also um, a feature editor for the Harvard Data Science Review. So Shelly and I, um, along with a wonderful uh, group of, of uh, podcast advisors, thought that we would start this you know, earlier, about a year ago, um, to try to figure out how we could share all of these data science in, uh, insights, I guess. And we got too excited with our examples already to talk about, but thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing your background as well, because I know both of you guys are um, have very impressive backgrounds. We wanted to make sure our listeners could hear that. So, you know, you had shared that the podcasts episodes, they come from articles from the, uh, the Harvard Data Science Review. So can you share some insights that you've seen into, uh, you know, how that's being used and also specifically um, because the podcast is based on that. So maybe if you can just, you know, talk a little bit about some of the articles that um, you highlight. Sure. Uh, let me start with the one article we uh, published, which actually is coming from, we have a particular uh, column called uh, Rent, uh, Rec- Recreations in Randomness. Uh, it's a it, it's a column basically data science for leisure activities, and one of the uh, early articles was you know, matched the timing or it's the was the predicting Oscar winners, and uh, so we you know we have also you know to to write that article and then we also team up uh, him with the uh, with uh, 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 you know a, a movie critic from uh, from Glow. and we basically have you know, had that conversation. And it's very interesting because two of them basically was really trying to arguing, you know, how how useful data science is, or, or probably the old term that data science is kind of fancy term in this particular area. Uh, in, you know, people have been using statistics to predict uh, many things for many, many years, decades. And so the question was really what's predictable, what's not predictable. And uh, and I think um, uh, these two uh, guests, you know, have a somewhat different different perspective, different different emphasis. But but they were all very clear that you know this this uh, uh, the whole pandemic is a great example of how hard it is to predict things because whatever they are doing and uh, all the information they use from the previous Oscar suddenly you know any part of them just go out of the window when you have a pandemic you know all these things are different and uh, how people vote all these things so it was it was a great um, episode both 
to expand on what the article was was about and also getting additional perspectives um, uh, and and that's the way we enhance or you know or articles most of our podcast uh, we're trying to do that uh, pair you know an author or, or, or a board member of HDSR with you know a guest and um, uh, but there are, there are there are times that you know other topics we just have two guests are uh, maybe they're writing article for for HDSR in the future yeah so and like to really to bring up the future articles, sometimes when a topic is really timely and we're able to do it on the podcast, whereas, you know, with the articles, they have to be peer reviewed and that can take time. So we'll do an, uh, a podcast and an article that's you know happening right now and the article will be in the journal in the future. And um, we did one that came out of uh, we, we hosted a world migration and refugee symposium. And so Hani Farid, who's at Berkeley and Scott Tranter, who owns Optimus Analytics, um, we did a podcast with them on misinformation and disinformation about an article that come out later. And it was really this sort of incredible discussion. Um, you know, we've heard the words fake news a lot recently. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, four years ago or six years ago, I, you know, I remember hearing about, you know, the Russians are, are talking about, you know, fake news. And next thing, you know, an hour later, Trump is calling everything fake news. And, you know, we were talking with them about the history of this, and it's not new. You know, it's like the yellow journalism with partisan papers and pamphlets in the 19th century, or John Adams in the Revolutionary War would sensationalize news. And in general, you know, there's always been this sort of kernel of truth behind fake news or disinformation or, you know, like George Washington, when they were crossing the Delaware, Scott gave this example, um, you know, they'd say to the soldiers, the guys across the river, they want to kill you and eat your babies. And they may have wanted to kill you, but they didn't want to eat babies. Okay. So it was, it was this sensationalism that's been going on forever. And it's the same thing now, but what's really different now is the weaponization of this misinformation and, and disinformation. It's the scale with social media. You know, as we've democratized access to publishing information, you don't, you know, you don't need to be the New York Times or have a printing press to get out information. And it means that basically the billions of people around the world that use social media are now sort of a, a threat vector. And, you know, social media, then you have all these billions of people and then social media and the algorithms themselves promote the most sensational, the most read content, and then it gets promoted over and over and over again. And, you know, whatever you think of different mainstream medias, if you're the New York Times or you're any of these, if you, if you, you know, get something wrong, you usually print a correction. You know, and regardless of what you think, the goal of mainstream media is to get stuff right. And if they get something wrong, there's there's consequences. People even lose their jobs over this kind of thing. But you can't say the same for a Facebook or a TikTok or a, a Twitter. Um, you know, with the goal of mainstream media being to inform, you don't say that same thing about these social media companies and the algorithms that run behind them with just these incredible amounts of data. And it just shows how well a lot of things in history have been the same. The you, you know, the the invention of these incredible algorithms and this incredible ability to collect data has really changed uh, changed the way we think about things from history. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. We were talking about the effects of the pandemic and what that means for those who are tracking data, because I think it's interesting. We we definitely have seen this because we've been following uh, you know, AI and data trends for the last four years, but the conversation definitely has changed in the last year, year and a half. And the biggest thing is that sort of the typical average consumer person, you know, whether it's a, 
you know, a person who's like working a job or working from home or people working from home who might have wanted to not work from home or teachers or grandparents, they're all following data now. They're citing statistics about pandemic rates, our values. Who would think that some, you know, suburban somebody is quoting an R value? What is, they don't even know what that means. Uh, or they're quoting like different uh, factors, uh, hospitalization rates, infection rates. Those are the obvious, uh, uh, highly visible aspects of data. But the interesting thing is the hidden aspects of data, we didn't even realize the impacts of where we might think, okay, we have a pandemic. I need to track how many hospital beds are available. Who thought that I need to track? Do we have enough toilet paper or yeast or lumber? Because who would, who would have known that the impact of people changing their work life uh, patterns would have meant baking more bread at home? <laughs> people scared, I guess, about the scarcity of toilet paper, whether or not that's a reality is a whole other issue and availability of lumber because everybody's sitting in their homes and they're looking and they're saying, I think my closet needs a remodel or maybe I need a new addition or something like that. Maybe it's time to pay attention to that leaky sink. So um, these are the impacts that everybody was caught off guard, you know, from the hospitality industry, the travel industry and everything. And I think that's where now when we are talking to enterprises, especially about the impact of data, this is where they get um, surprised and concerned, which is what don't I know? Or what, what exposures do I have in my systems, supply chain systems, my labor pool, uh, basic things like what do I need to be planning for more office capacity two years from now? Well, I should throw that whole plan out the window because because maybe I'm not even going to be having office space uh, two years in the future. And I think that's I think now people are paying a lot more attention to the power of of data and understanding data to to understand that. One of the things that we spend some time talking about a lot in our podcast is sort of like people trying to actually make sense of data. And there's been an unfortunate um, uh, set of conversations we've had where the organizations we talk to, they're just not used to running data projects. You know, they they could be a CIO or a chief data officer, the new title, the chief technology officer. They're used to building, they're used to implementing systems they're used to building software. They're used to agile as a methodology, but they don't even have like a methodology in place. We, we've been sort of shocked, you know, like, wait, you're like the chief information officer for like one of the largest companies, you know, on the planet. And you have no standardized method by which you run data projects. And, you know, I know we've been talking about methodologies such as the CPMAI methodology, which is becoming a standard methodology for running data science projects, at least on a predictable basis, which is based, some of your listeners might know about CRISPDM, which is a methodology that's been around for 20 plus years for data projects. Um, And so we spent a lot of time talking about that. And our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about that, you should go to courses.cognolitica.com to learn about the CPMAI methodology. There's certainly others. We're not <laughs> saying that there's one beats all, but something is better than nothing. So I guess the question for you is the same thing. You know, when you have been out there talking to either folks through through the research or through um, through the podcast or through the publication, what have you seen as some of the biggest trends or maybe even surprises uh, in the data and the data science world? Well, thank you for that great question. The um, you know the biggest trend I have seen, and and partly because of launching the Harvard Data Science Review. As I wrote in my first editorial, that data science has really become an ecosystem. It's it's no longer a, a kind of a single discipline. It's no longer just academia saying it's not it's not a 
only industry or only government. It's it's really you know everything, and uh, um, that really has consequences. But when I wrote about, for example, this is more from the education perspective. Is that early on, I think there's still some university trying to do that. They uh, will think about building a department of data science, and now the general wisdom is that's probably not a good idea. Uh, it's just like a very much like you're trying to build a department of science. You know, you, it, it's not just going to work because it has so many different components. The data science is no longer just about statistics, computer science, even engineer information science. There's all sorts of stuff on the HDSR board. We literally have philosophers all the way to quantum physicists and and government leaders, industry leaders, CEOs. You know, everyone there because you know, frankly, the reason it's get so big is is essentially. We now live in this thing called a digital world, world, right? And it's everything is you know digital world. It's like just physical world. You can think about there's so many, you know, so many different, you know, so many different components. And so, um, I'm actually uh, just writing another article. Uh, I'm trying to help people to think about, you know, uh, do do you ask a question? What's the difference between physics and a physical science? Well, you. Most people say, well, that's kind of a silly question. You obviously know physics is a part of physical science. Physical science is much broader as chemistry, earth planetary science, you know, other stuff. But we still ask a question, for example, what is the difference between statistics and data science? What's the difference between computer science and data science? I think soon, soon we probably will stop asking these questions because we realize that's really the wrong question. That you know, it's not these discipline boundaries. It's really how we can all work together just like a whole the science team or social science team, the humanity, you know, how we work together to advance uh, society, you know, intellectual pursuits, you know, whatever we want to do. And so for me, I think the biggest trend uh, is, is partly is this general recognition of that we need to treat the data science really far more broad than as a you know, single discipline. And this is a part of the reflection of that is many universities are building school of data science. Uh, you know, division of data science instead of department of, of data science. Uh, Berkeley is doing one. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, North Carolina has one and other, other universities are doing those, those things. So I think that is one of the, probably one of the biggest, um, how, what should I say? Probably not revolution, but certainly evolution in the, in the academic world, you know, in the past century, you know, how many new kinds of schools you can build. There are just not many. And, and data scientists now is to kind of we're in this time zone. I what I think is in the next five to ten years we'll be seeing a lot more kind of school of data science or college of data science of that nature. MIT has this college of computing, you know, uh, you know along these lines. So I think that's one of the biggest trends that I as as I'm seeing now. I think to sort of add to that, it's such a sort of incredibly organized way of thinking about the big picture. And I think we also, it's good to always bring it down to sort of the, the smaller picture, if you will, um, which is that, you know, for different groups, and again, we talked about this with the art auction, it's worlds where you wouldn't necessarily think data would be so important, but that this sort of new real trend is the framework of evaluation. And what I mean by that is that we are seeing different uh, fields use data science in ways to allow them to evaluate things that they've maybe been seeing for hundreds of years or tens of years. So, you know, for example, we've all heard of Moneyball, you know, the Brad Pitt movie of how data revolutionized baseball. But in the past 20 years, um, data is revolutionizing all sorts of sports. So uh, basketball, for example, 
um, it's not only, you know, it's not only the, you know, what player shot this shot, but players are also wearing wearables, you know, different ways to collect data analytics. And it's really changed the entire game of basketball. Um, for example, you know, there's good shots on the chessboard to shoot from and some really bad ones. So about five years ago, um, they figured out that two point jump shots are really inefficient compared to three point jump shots. And that came solely from data. And it meant that these players who five years ago were really fringe players in the NBA who could barely get on a team, uh, Seth Curry, uh, his brother, Stephen Curry, Stephen Curry, for example, um, he was a spectacular three-point shooter. And five years ago, he couldn't get on a team. And now he's one of the highest paid guys in the NBA because teams started to really value these three-point shots. So I, I mean that you know these frameworks of evaluation and how every industry is choosing to evaluate how good they are is now seeing this sort of data science framework. And I think we see that really in every industry. Um, whether they're good at it or bad at evaluating their framework is a different question, but they are all starting to create frameworks using data to evaluate performance. Yeah, that's great insights. You know, I think that people in general are also becoming much more aware of how data impacts all aspects of their lives. You know, 10, 15 years ago, I don't think many people thought much about data, their data footprint. And suddenly now it's everywhere and everybody's thinking about it. And so now you can start looking at data differently, uh, you know, um, back Sometimes, you know, there's something about intuition as well. And, you know, humans will always have that and take that into account. But sometimes you really have to just look at the data and say, I'm going I'm to take my emotions out of it. <laughs> Let me not always make these emotional decisions that may not be the most rational or, you know, the best decisions. You do need to train yourself for that. Um, sometimes, no matter what, people still like to, to have those emotions. But it's great. And I, again, you know, I love all of the examples that you've given because it really helps people understand, say, okay, you know, well, yes, you're saying it, but then how is it actually being applied? And that's one thing, whenever we talk to to clients, they always want to know, okay, well, how are other industries doing it? Or how are other people doing it? How, you know, what's, what's an example? Um, and so I love that you provided all of them. Now, we always like to ask this question at the end of our podcast, and we continue to get such incredible and varied um, responses. So I'm really looking forward to what both of you have to say. As a final note, what do you believe the future future of AI is in general and its application to organizations and beyond? I, I think I'll, I can start with this one. Um, what has, has surprised me and shocked me and been so incredible to see over and over again with doing this podcast is the amount of data that is in the world and the amount of data that is being created, especially in recent times. Um, we just did a podcast talking about healthcare data and, uh, you know, Healthcare data is over 30% of the world's data, and the U.S. is collecting the largest portion of it, and it's growing like crazy. Um, you know, to put it into context, and this is just healthcare data, in the 1950s, healthcare data doubled every 50 years, and now it's doubling about every 50 days. And there's a thousand times more healthcare data created annually than the entire internet, including you know, all those dog and cat and kid videos. So just in this one industry of healthcare data, you have so much information 
How do you organize it? And how do you find insights from it? You know, what, what is the future of curing cancer with personalized medicine? How do you, how do you even begin to start when you have this amount of data? And I think that's what's really shocked me and makes me, I guess in a lot of ways, they'll have hope for AI in the future that it will be able to tackle some of our biggest problems because we are collecting so much data. But I know, I know Shelly has a follow-up to this that is one of my favorite things that he always says um, that I think will really uh, help to hone my, my, my future hope. Well, thank you, Liberty. And uh, I want to say that, you know, now you open with this question that it can take me hours to hours to answer. So stop me anytime. And, uh, uh, you know, for me, I think of talking about the future of AI or future of data science, all of those things, is that it, we really have to uh, think about um, what human want, right? Let's think about our, our, our day-to-day life. We make a lot of decisions every day. I mean, you're driving, you drive, you, you buy things, you're constantly making decisions, right? How, how do human brains kind of make a decision? Well, we use whatever the information in our head at the moment, and, and we use our judgment, we use our experience, use our whatever knowledge, we make these things, and we make things very quickly. What data science and AI have enabled us to do, at least on the surface, is what uh, Liberty just said, is that it's almost like you have instantly, you have many, many uh, people you can consult with. You have many, many opinions, you have millions, zillions, you know, opinions like at, you know, at your disposal. Um, but on the other hand, you also understand that even I have a, a milling experts to, to consult, I have to worry about are they really experts? And, and the first and the second is that when you have a, a milling opinions, how do I summarize them? That, you know, I'm sure they will not be the same. They have all these different, uh, you know, perspectives. And so for me, uh, kind of just, you know, follow up on what the Liberty says is the data quality is such a big issue. Right. And we have been emphasizing data quality. Now, data quality is relatively easier to measure. Uh, data quality is much, much harder to measure. And part of my research, and I wrote this, my uh, 2018 articles in the end of applied statistics is about creating something I call the DDI is a data defect index. How do you create, how do you quantify a particular uh, you know, the quality of a particular data set. Now, the, the complication there is the, the quality of the data depends on the purpose of your study. Uh, you know, a data can be uh, perfectly uh, useful for one study. It could be pretty bad for, you know, for another. And uh, uh, I was using examples, for example, that we all know that in the last two uh, to uh, U.S. you know uh, uh, presidential election, the the uh, prediction let's say didn't do a great work, it didn't do a great job, and 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 how do you quantify that, right? And uh, um, so back to uh, the the podcast, and uh, Liberty mentioned that we did the most recently we did the sort of health data, uh, uh, you know episode. We also did the the second most recently we did a, a mental health. Uh, you know, episode, and both of them like give me. Let me let me just say a little bit of these uh, both examples about the issue of data quality. For the mental health one, that uh, one of the guests I used to uh, had a chance to uh, to work with her. She's a great uh, psychiatrist at Harvard, uh, uh, Maggie. That I used to work with her as a statistical consultant, and I she studied about uh, you know major depressions, uh, anxiety disorders, all the stuff. I used to semi-joke, semi-serious, you know, with her, I said, you know, after I studied how the major major depression uh, was measured, I got pretty depressed. Um, the, the reason being, uh, unlike 
unlike you know you have uh, some biological disease there are these tests there's a blood test there's other tests you can do uh, these these mental health issues are much more complicated i mean there are kind of physical tests you can run but mostly there are lots of judgment involved right lots of experience they do have protocols they have all things but a lot of things based on you know uh, based on the you know doctor experience with the patients based on patient self-report you know their, how they feel and lots of those things are the human judgment will be always there and and always needed and and so for me that one of the uh, uh, biggest issue here I think that there are a lot more emphasis now is really a this about a human and the AI kind of you know uh, these interactions right and in fact the more we do, on the automated space, the more human judgment, you know, will be needed. And I think that to me, that the future had to be a combination of uh, this human's judgment, you know, well-informed judgment, and uh, these AI systems. They, the, the, the great thing about AI system or data science broadly is they can run, they, they can do things much faster and they can handle a lot more volumes than individual human beings can. But at the end of the day, we are the ones still making decisions, right? We're the one, you, you know, we're you know, we're the one still needs to make the final call. We're, we're the one needs to make sure that nothing, you know, uh, really devastating will it will happen. I want to mention that maybe as a, con- a closing thought that we had the one article in um, in uh, HDSR on this uh, from this column, uh, recreation randomness about uh, talking about, you know, computation and humor, right? And, you know, let the let this kind of AI system to write the joke. And so um, so the punchline of that article is that it's it's actually no joke, you know, to to uh, to uh, to do that because because what's what's kind of almost ironic is that currently it turned out to be incredibly hard for an AI system or computer or any program to write these these humans that will we will be laughing really hard. And uh, but the point was that we should be very happy with that. When the when the computer can really write jokes, very you know make us laugh, then that's probably the point they're going to take over. Because currently they just don't have that kind of humans a way of appreciate all these humans. So I thought it was you know great article. But but the point being there is that I think it, it will be the for me that it seems like the right future is this kind of a interaction between the human and the AI system broadly data science, and uh, it's never should be one replace the other. I think either one will be pretty bad or pretty disastrous. And we probably would never, that would never happen. It's really, uh, it's really human trying to, after all, right, computers, everything was was designed, discovered, you know, uh, invented by, you know, by human. It's always about, you know, extending or, or you know, intellectual power, but we do a lot more than we used to do because the uh, incredible, you know, you know technology, but this notion that it will be um, kind of will be you know re- replaced, I think it's it's just uh, to me I don't think that's that that, that will happen. That, that's great insight. <laughs> I love that little punch. It's like don't be a, don't be afraid of the super intelligence until they can tell a good joke because yes. That's it's when you know you're in trouble. <laughs> That's great insight. Um, and I think it's funny because if you think about your, your you know, if you have kids, you have young kids and, and you know, my, my kids are getting older to this point now where they can actually make make some good jokes. But when, they're, when the kids are really young, you know, their jokes are not very good. You know, they're like, you know, what do you call a fire truck? And then they say bumblebee or something like, and they're laughing. And like, okay, somebody finds that funny. So it's like, I, I think even for humans, it's like you have to, mature your brain to a certain point to make good jokes. 
Well, this is this has really been fantastic. I mean, both of you are just fantastic guests. You've provided some amazing insight. As I mentioned, you know, we've been doing 200 plus episodes and there's still so much to talk about in this subject of data, data science and AI and where things are heading. And every conversation is still unique. We have not repeated a theme once in the last four years, I think, go another four or five years, and we still will not repeat a theme. So I want to encourage all of our listeners, if you haven't yet, please do tune in and, and subscribe to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. Uh, there are a few episodes into it. There will, uh, we'll continue to have many more episodes. I think you'll gain a lot of insights. If you've learned something new on this podcast, and I'm sure you have, you will hear and learn some other things as well on their podcast. And we, as mentioned, we we're, we have been honored uh, to be interviewed by them as well on their podcast. Hopefully we've inflicted on their uh, audience a little bit of our own insights. Uh, but we really just want to give a big thank you to our two presenters here for for joining us and sharing your insights of this podcast. Thank you very much, Liberty Vittert and Shaolin Meng. Thank you so much for, for joining us here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes and also subscribe to our podcast as well. Come to our page for the show notes. Come to our landing page. You can go to aitoday.live and we'll make sure to link to the um, our episode on their podcast and also the Harvard Data Science podcast as well. So thanks for listening and we'll catch you at the next episode. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. <laughs>